already devoted considerable time and thought to basic definitions of hermetic philosophy. And in the, the work of last evening, we trace this through its various phases, from its religious and metaphysical implications in Egypt, uh, to its chemical and alchemical extensions in the early years of the modern world. This evening we wish to approach a different aspect, but largely within the broad coverage of our original intention. The question of the place of the original Hermetic teachings in the rise of Christianity must first be clearly stated. We must assume and accept that there is no unity of opinion on this matter. The more conservative writers are inclined to think that the old Hermetic tradition had a comparatively slight influence on Christianity. They support their position in many ways, particularly by interpretation of the Hermetic writings. Let me point out exactly what I mean by this statement. They use interpretation of their own for the simple reason that basic interpretation or basic understanding is almost completely lacking. Therefore, we are unable to say with certainty what the old Hermetic masters might have said as rela in relation to Christianity. Most of the uh, articles, books, research papers that have been done have been done from a very late date and uh, by more or less prejudiced thinkers. I do not mean intentional prejudice, but through the long medieval period where scholarship in these extraordinary subjects is not particularly uh, clear or complete, very little survived that could guide us and direct us in our modern thinking. On the other hand, we must realize that Christianity and Hermetism rose in the same general environment and background. And a study of the early church fathers indicates clearly that among the original Christians of the first three centuries, there were men and women of numerous attainments. We cannot assume that Christianity was composed entirely of simple folks. It attracted scholars of many persuasions, and as must follow under such conditions, these scholars brought with them to the faith the background of their own general and particular learnings. Thus we may say that it would have been almost impossible for a new sect or creed to arise completely uncolored and untouched by earlier or even important contemporary influences. There can be no doubt also that among certain learned groups, groups which later became distinguished uh, in many instances for heresy, among learned groups there was a natural inclination to philosophize Christianity. It became important to certain minds to orient Christianity against the background, we will say, of Platonic philosophy, or against uh, the background of Aristotelian thought. 
It was also in North Africa quite customary to find Christianity closely interwoven with Gnosticism, with the later phases of, the, of Egyptian religion, with Hermetic speculations, and a little later with Neoplatonism and Neopythagoreanism. The Christian of that time, well, if he was an intellectual, might not really know the dimensions of his own orthodoxy or lack of it. Christianity had not attained a strong dogmatic position. Its own beliefs and doctrines were not too clear, as we find from the Antonicene Fathers. We must therefore accept that there was, not only probably, but almost certainly, some interchange, some intermingling of ideas in the early Christian communion. Gradually, with the passing of time, some of these early minglings came to be generally recognized and accepted as orthodox. Others of these early influences did not fit so well into the growing philosophical structure of the church. They were therefore discarded, or perhaps only ignored out of existence. The question that perhaps interests us is the degree to which hermetic ideas may have survived, may even now be found within the body of orthodoxy, uh, acceptable, generally regarded as orthodox to the person of today. One point that perhaps is of interest in the parallel between hermetic thought and Christianity is the approach to deity which strongly differentiates and distinguishes the teachings of this mysterious ex-personality whom we know as Hermes. In one of his earlier tracts, Hermes says the universe is composed of only two qualities, the creator and the works of the creator. This statement not only survived into Christianity, unless we wish to regard it as already indigenous there, but it certainly continued to exercise a strong influence in medieval thinking, and even in modern religious thought. The concept as Hermes unfolds it, conceives the universe to consist of only the attributes of one sovereign power. There is nothing but God. All things that do not appear to be God are conditions of God. Deity in substance and in essence, absolute and indivisible, may not so be cognized by man, Hermes taught. Man, therefore, must observe, observe the separate works of God, and by thus observing, he falls into a possible illusion. This illusion is that these works have a separate subsistence, a true, a true and total existence in themselves. Hermes says this is not so. That all works have their existence and subsistence only in God. And extending this concept, Hermes also taught that the manifested or obvious parts of creation, even if brought together 
in all their diversified and apparently separate fractional manifestations. Deity is not merely the sum of the manifested parts of deity. Deity is the sum of that which is manifested and that which is not manifested. Deity is the substance, therefore, of all things knowable, all things known, and all things which have an existence but are unknown or unknowable. Hermes then gives us a statement which is very reminiscent of a familiar one, namely that in deity or in God men live and move and have their beings. And not only do they exist in God, in a world of God, surrounded by God creatures and God creations. They exist here not as visitors or strangers or things separate and apart. So we have the hermetic thought that man shares with creation an immediate participation in the creator. The total of things knowable must include man. And Hermes tells us that not only that man which is visible to the sensory perceptions, but that man which is invisible. Not only that man which is the son of earth, but that man which is the son of mind. Uh, thus Hermes gives us the relationship of parent and child as far as this can be applied to an abstract theological uh, concept. Deity is parent, total parent, father, mother. Hermes pointed out that deity is androgynous, namely possessing within itself the qualities of father, mother. But more than this pertains, partakes of a still stranger extension, for this deity which is father and mother is also the progeny of father and mother. Thus, deity is father, mother, child. Deity gave birth out of itself to all things, and these, by their unions and minglings, cause further generations, and these later generations are like the original creation in God and of God. Throughout this entire concept, Hermes is essentially teaching a monotheistic theology. Yet he differs from some other schools in, in recognizing that monotheism in itself and by itself is not adequate to explain the phenomenal existence which we call creation. Therefore, uh, to Hermes it was necessary to assume that from the original and creating power and still embraced within the love, wisdom, and authority of that power, there are both primary and secondary emanations. Some creatures or creations more closely resemble deity than others. And here we come very close to some of the early Pythagorean and Platonic speculations. Those creatures 
first created and containing within themselves the greater effulgency of the divine power are more proximate to deity and therefore by proximity attain a likeness or by likeness attain a proximity. Both positions are advanced. Later creations, or shall we, shall we say, creations of creations of creations, depart from the original proximity, and that man which is the son of God is nearer in a strange way in power and potential than that man that is the son of man that is the son of God. Thus by descent creation falls away from the center of its own creative power and falls into the circumference of that power. Uh, Hermes conceived the center of this power to be will or the tremendous dynamic of life and the circumference of this power to be love or the hunger of all things for their own divinity and the hunger of God to absorb into himself or itself all of its own creations. Therefore, man falling away from the will of God falls into the love of God. He never departs from God, but may be brought back by love to proximity again with deity. And the story of this return will be the subject of the final series, of lecture of this series, which will deal with the great Hermetic book, The Shepherd of Men. Hermes, therefore, like the Gnostics, envisioned a hierarchy, a universe of powers, principalities, angels, archangels, thrones, and dominions. He saw not only the great fountain of all things, but uh, closely followed the Chaldean oracles in describing the father fountains from the great fountains the powers and the minds that flow forth from the power and the mind. He conceived of Anthropos, and Anthropos the son of Anthropos. He beheld in the unfolding of universal existence, the opening of a great flower, reminiscent of the vision of Dante. And as the petals of this universal blossom, this rose of the troubadours, opened in the light of the divine sun, it revealed a universe of splendid majesty, an infinitely unfolding chorus of powers hymning the eternal, and all to various degrees revealing and serving this tremendous fountain of fountains, this father cause of all that exists. From these reflections, the Hermetic teaching uh, organizes the universe into hierarchs, into descending orders of beings, from those completely divine to those possessing heroic potentials as demigods and supermen. There were not only celestial orders of deities, but there were sidereal orders, and there were terrestrial orders, and even subterranean orders again following the Eleusinian and Orphic concepts of the Grecians. These orders of life fill all space with life, 
so that there was not anywhere where there was not light. The Hermetic masters of later time, particularly in the early alchemistical period, extended this thinking still further, laying the groundwork for such fantasies as the Comte de Gabelet, this mysterious story of elemental beings and creatures, and also opening the road to an extreme demonism based upon the demonism of the classical uh, world of thought. In the course of this thinking, Hermes uh, made a series of statements which perhaps are indicative of a phase of our problem. These statements have been examined, analyzed, and to a measure rejected as heretical uh, by uh, orthodox uh, Christian theologians. Let us see just exactly what these statements may mean. In attempting to support and sustain the faith of his disciple Asclepius, Hermes explained that not only are living creatures possessed by divine powers, so that all men are not only gods in themselves, but oracles of greater gods, but such extraordinary powers may be conferred upon images, likenesses, or representations of deities. These images, possessing a peculiar sympathy through likeness, and that those images consecrated to a deity and fashioned in the popular likeness of that deity and held in sincere esteem and veneration by contrite, noble, and devout persons, such images may possess virtues, may become, so to say, containers for extensions of divine power, and in this way may provide oracles, may perform miracles, may in turn be accepted in the absence of the deity, or in the unknowing of the deity, as a proper and appropriate emblem, symbol, or embodiment, a personification of a spiritual energy. This concept certainly affected Paracelsus, who in turn affected most of the rise of medieval science and laid much of the groundwork for modern science. This thought carries with it an interesting speculation. Hermes pointed out that images erected to sanctified persons or to deities may have power to heal the sick. In what degree does this essentially differ from the modern concept of images in many departments and divisions of the Christian Church? Hermes does not tell us that these images are gods, nor that they are false gods, nor that they should be worshipped as equivalent to or equal to gods. Hermes tells us that these images are symbols, emblems, figures, bearing witness to man's veneration of invisible powers, proximate statues in honor of remote principles. If, therefore, an individual shall create an image with the full realization that this image is a shadow of a principle, 
and shall worship this image not for itself, but as a means of focusing his attentions or his devotions upon something substantially unseen and invisible. He shall not be regarded as an idolater. He shall not be regarded as a worshiper of idols unless he bestows the spiritual power upon the idol itself, unless he regards the creature of marble, stone, or wood as having a sanctity in its own nature. If, however, he shall use this as he uses religious art to remind him of the existence of a spiritual power and shall fully recognize that the image is not that power, but only represents it under certain conditions, and that all prayers addressed to the image are addressed actually to the power and not to the statue. Under such conditions there shall not be heresy. This is more or less accepted today. And the intercession of saints and the uh, presentation of petition to canonized persons or to representations of Christ or the Virgin Mary, or the Apostles, shall not be regarded as the worship of images, but shall be regarded as internal reminders by which man receives an impulse to the fulsomeness of veneration, and shall therefore worship in spirit and in truth, using this symbol only as a means of centering his attention upon something which is otherwise beyond the cognition of his senses. Hermes clearly makes this point, and we can scarcely deny that it has survived to us. However, in the course of time, a point also made by Hermes came into general disrepute and was conveniently forgotten. This point is to the effect that such images, as are made under certain conditions, have magical qualities peculiar to themselves. These magical qualities not being spiritual or religious, but pertaining to sciences, as yet but remotely uh, sensed and practically without our general recognition. Thus, according to Hermes, is into a figure or into a symbol, there shall be incorporated certain principles of mathematics, of universal procedure, of cosmogony, of art, of musical harmony, of artistic canon. If, in other words, this image shall be made a resplendent geometrical or artistic composition, so essentially proportioned so beautiful in its parts, so benevolent in its complexion, that it shall cause the admiration of men, then this, in, this image is not dead. For it may lead men to repentance. It may cause evil persons to ask forgiveness. It may console the afflicted and the burdened. And it may also inspire the studious to examine its proportions in search for universal truths concealed behind the actual structure and form themselves. Thus, according to Hermes, anything which influences man cannot be dead. Furthermore, 
anything that influences man and is alive or has life of any quality in it can not only not be dead but it can participate in but one life and that is the life of God. Therefore whatever virtue there be in herbs, whatever authority there be in law, whatever skill there may be in the hand of the physician, all these things are but the extensions of the creating power into the diversity of creating of created attributes. Hermes therefore assumes that deity not only causes to come from himself forms and lives, but also relationships, patterns, interplays of forces, and that in these relationships there are also virtues, for things in themselves unchangeable appear to change or take on new mutual meanings and values because of motions. Motion is therefore a movement in interval of time or place, and interval and motion itself both are God. Out of this uh, concept a great many philosophical points uh, could be developed, but for the moment we cannot extend beyond this small circumference as we have too many other points that call for our attention. We can therefore only summarize this phase of our thinking by pointing out that it was not correct and is not correct to assume that primitism is essentially pantheistic. It is not. It is pantheistic only inasmuch as it conveys life to everything. But it conveys only one life, that the life of God. And in the Hermetic philosophy, there is no possibility for the existence of a principle of evil. There cannot be a demonism as we know it. There can only be that kind of a recognition of tutelary spirits, mundane and submundane, all of them in some way legitimate and reasonable extensions of the divine power, which may extend itself in ways and on levels utterly beyond human cognition. Hermes also held that because one power animated all things, that there was a continuous and endless interrelationship of things. Man is not unaffected by that which is unseen. Man is not completely unconditioned by that which is unknown. Man must therefore perceive not only with his sensory perceptions, but also with his intuitive and inspirational faculties. And there are aspects of divinity moving around him and through him constantly, which he cannot consciously delineate, which he cannot define, which he cannot even clearly experience. Those parts of divinity which are not within his rationality therefore move him, whereas those parts of divinity which are within his rationality he gains a certain mastery over, and by this mastery he causes movement, he causes action, thus using the conscious knowledge that he has to move what he knows and being in turn unconsciously moved by that which he does not know. Thus man lives forever in a divine motion.
a motion moving him both inwardly and outwardly. Outward motion may lead man in numerous directions, real or unreal. Inward motion leads man only to the total experience of life. Therefore, the inward motion of man is always a divine motion, a God motion. But in itself, this motion cannot be defined and can only be broadly estimated from the total pattern of the mutations of life caused by the motion of invisibles through various situations and conditions, during parts of which uh, these invisibles project visible or semi-visible semblances of themselves. The next point that I think is important to us is the opinion of Hermes concerning the nature of what we term the Messiah. The Egyptians certainly had a messianic tradition. We know that in the later centuries of Egyptian religion, their form of messianic concept was drifting closer and closer to that with which we are now familiar. As early as the 5th or 6th century B.C., the Egyptians had already come into the recognition of an intercessing power in nature, an intercessor, a power of salvation or preservation. And this power they variously symbolized. One of their names for this power was Iesus, a name which is startlingly reminiscent of Jesus. In the Hermetic philosophy, we do not have exactly the Christian presentation of the messianic concept. We do have, however, a concept, and one which almost certainly has played a part in the rise of Christian philosophy, as this philosophy was unfolded by men like Thomas Aquinas. According to Hermes, that which is eternal, that which has of itself everlastingness, enduring unto all generations, that which has neither a source in time nor in eternity, but a subsistence in foreverness. This power is alone immortal, incapable of death because essentially incapable of birth, incapable of in any way departing from the totality of its total self. This universality cannot be divided. It is indivisible. There can never be two. Nor can it divide by some philosophical fission to become a duality. As Pythagoras had earlier taught, the only way in which division can be countenanced in the concept of a total divine power is that division is within that power, but that that power itself remains undivided. Thus, in the Hermetic philosophy, a certain division occurs within totality. And this division blazes forth, not as a separateness, not as a power brought into any possible antagonism with its own cause, but a power which is a somewhat restricted manifestation of totality. That power Hermes calls the divine mind. He calls it also universal reason. He says that the firstborn of the infinite 
is the extension of the infinite itself into the field of pure cognition. Therefore, that the first act of the first creation is to uh, worship the Creator. Mind, therefore, by its natural inclination, turns toward its Creator, and pure cognition venerates above all other things the source of itself. This mind, in the Hermetic philosophy, becomes the only begotten of the Father. It becomes, strangely, both the only begotten and the firstborn. And in this Hermes is in no more difficulty than some other schools. For we refer to Jesus as the only begotten, and at the same time assume that deity is the creator also of ourselves. Therefore, Hermes begins to ponder the problem of the difference between the begotten and the created. Also, the difference in a kind of generation. And comes to the conclusion that mind or reason is the product of a peculiar kind of creation. A kind of creation that is never again repeated. That in the, pro in the projection of the divine mind, to borrow an Eastern term, deity creates by will and yoga alone. The deity, by the pronunciation of a determination within its own nature, engenders within itself that aspect of itself which is mind. This mind, or this cognition, then becomes, strangely, the instrument of the divine purpose. It becomes the apex of the ascending pyramid of creation and the base of the descending pyramid of the creating power. Thus, in the Hermetic philosophy, mind is a kind of savior. But Hermes was not perturbed with some of the peculiar situations that later arose in Christian theology. He was not, preserved, he was not concerned with the problem of a mind preserving something otherwise lost. He was not confronted with the need for a saving mind, as we know it. He was rather in need of the concept of an instructing mind. In the Hermetic doctrine, all so-called redemption, or regeneration, or restoration, or the transmutation of things inferior into a superior state or condition, is the result of the power of the revealing mind. It is due to the fact that through the revealing or the unfolding principle of reason, all things become aware of reality. And regeneration is awareness of reality. It is not a rescuing from sin, but a restoration from not knowing. It is the creature becoming aware more and more completely of the universal reality in which it exists. By the Hermetic concept, therefore, there can be only one kind of wisdom, and that is the wisdom by which man is capable of becoming totally aware of the total existence of deity, by which man can also become aware that all diversity is an illusion, and that what we call division 
is merely the result of limited sensory instruments which are unable to attain a state of total cognition. Universal reason, having come forth out of the eternal, becomes next to the eternal the most immortal of all creatures. Yet this wisdom is not in itself immortal. Noose or reason or mind, with its overtone in hermetic speculation, a mind which is pure cognitional reason in itself, is therefore the most aged and the most immediate of all things. Mind has a beginning in time and an end in time. But its timelessness it is exceeded only by the eternity of divinity itself. Thus mind must be born or begotten. And that which has been begotten must again return ultimately to the state from which it came. Therefore, eternal reason or absolute cognition must ultimately return to the Father, must become one with the Father. For truly, any being which has experienced pure cognition has experienced the Father. And that which has experienced the Father by likeness comes under the protection and under the shepherding of pure cognition. We cannot say, therefore, that pure cognition was the God of Hermes, but we can say that it was definitely the primary symbol the first cognizable image of that which is beyond all human estimation. This mind, this universal reason, must then be examined in its several parts, for it contains within itself universal perception, universal reflection, and another quality, perhaps born of the union of perception and reflection. And that is the quality of immediate experience within the substance of its own rationality. Mind must, therefore, in its fullness, to return to its full archetypal proportion, contain within itself the absolute experience of itself. Reason, therefore, must lead to what perhaps we may first conceive of as understanding. Understanding being more than knowing. Understanding being an enlightened kind of knowing. A human knowing impregnated with a spark of divine knowing. Understanding must then also be the power of impersonalization of perspective. It must be the flowing of knowing and of wisdom into the conscious participation with life itself, so that man understands, not only intellectually, but by the impact of a factual uh, significance upon himself. Hermes, therefore, points out that this mind possesses numerous saving attributes, if we wish to regard them as saving. But salvation is now merely rescue from inadequacy. Salvation is the natural return of life up the great ladder of souls. 
It is the path leading by means of love, through wisdom, back to the one which is the sovereign of all experiences. Hermes thus divides this wisdom into a spiritual, a semi-divine, a sidereal, and a terrestrial wisdom. He has special terms for these kinds of wisdom. He assumes also, assumes also, that in all the material and objective works of man, there are also patterns of wisdom. And there are various kinds of knowing, uh, marked or sealed upon creation itself. These kinds of knowing become the parents of creatures. And according to Hermes, there are men in whom are embodied uh, the cognition principle. Other men in whom the reflection principle is especially strong. And a few who are destined uh, by their own achievements and by the merits of universal procedure to a state of earlier understanding by which they can be elevated uh, by certain mystical, uh, avocational dedications uh, to the experience of God. Thus there are some who are born with a peculiar power to know men, others with peculiar power to know nature, and others with peculiar power to know God. Those with the peculiar power to know God are called religious. Those who have the peculiar power to know men are called philosophers. And those with the peculiar power to know nature are called scientists. These powers appear as a natural and innate predisposition. They can be cultivated, but they cannot be created. They can be given expression, or they can be frustrated. But there are certain lines of inevitable conduct moving in space. And these lines of conduct are embodied in groups, in persons, in nations, in races, and come into manifestation in various times and in different regions. So that we are not able to say with certainty that all things are identical in their appearances or in their functions. We may, however, declare that all appearance and all function is suspended itself from identity. Hermes then goes on to explain uh, that in man's world, in the human world of things, the universal or divine mind becomes embodied in man himself. And Hermes divides man into two essential patterns. The first of these is the archetypal man, the total man. This total man is an image existing in cognition itself. This archetypal man may or may not be an image held in total completeness. It is quite conceivable that archetype itself carries in it the dimension of growth. But archetype also bears a strange relationship as totality uh, to its own parts, as deity, being the creator of all things, projects creation and inhabits it. So archetype, the archetypal man, the anthropos, is the source and collective unity of humanity, which is projected from it, which exists forever within it, is moved by it, 
and is gradually growing toward identity with its totality. Thus man, growing up in his human evolution, is fulfilling the collective archetype of man. And he accomplishes this by the peculiar process of fulfilling the particular archetype of himself. For as bodies are made of small units, such as cells and atoms, so the man archetype of, her, of type of Hermes is composed of an infinite number of units, the personal human archetypes of individuals. As these archetypes form, as it were, cells in a vast body, so this body is a kind of macrocosmic man, a great man containing in potential all the power that is necessary for the complete potency of the creatures fashioned within it. In this archetype, man lives and moves and has his being. It is a kind of strange proximate deity, not absolute and not eternal, but possessing reason and mind. Therefore, we have a break, in a sense, between the older concepts of archetype and the modern ones. The archetype of Hermes is not merely a design upon a trestle board, nor is it a thought arising in the divine mind, because in his philosophy the divine mind cannot create a thought. The divine mind can only create a thinker. Therefore, what we term this divine thought is actually a divine thinking pattern, a pattern in itself, not only complete so far as the biological growth of man is concerned, but also complete in his psychological and spiritual growth. Therefore, if a man attains pure cognition, he attains unity with the archetypal cognition of his own kind. This is a, this is a different approach but perhaps in the long run, the conclusions are not uh, so strange in light of other modern concerns. Where we have difficulty in finding a life inside of man, we may have difficulty in assuming a macrocosmic life also with intelligence. Hermes, of course, goes on to say that every species, every nation, every unit that exists in society must have an archetypal nature. And that this archetypal nature is the reason why this unit unfolds according to rules. And why it happens that the union of animals will not produce monsters. And why it occurs that we may expect like to engender like. And why also we have certain psychological peculiarities about groups. These group peculiarities can perhaps most easily be studied in animal life, but we are not as concerned with that. We are most concerned with the group archetypal entities in human affairs. One of the strongest examples of such an entity is nationalism, or again, racialism, and Hermes would say also sectarianism. Uh, these isms are actually not merely man-created things. They are things which come into existence because of conditioned energy flowing through man into his environment and molding that environment into archetype. Therefore, there are great archetypes and lesser archetypes. 
a man moving from one to another experiences certain changes in his own way of life. The ancients were quite certain that when a person of a certain nation moved into another nation, he must also adjust his magnetic fields and his electrodynamic structure to these new vibratory circumstances. And that only when he was adjusted to the new archetypal pattern could he be said to truly belong. For things belonging must ultimately belong to archetypes. Because archetypes alone have the energy or power to require belonging. Or to manifest the instinct of belonging through themselves. The forms do not do this. It is the archetype behind the form that exercises this influence. It is not then particularly remarkable that Hermes should use uh, this philosophy of archetypes uh, to a measure as Iamblichus did in his development of his treatise on the gods and of the Egyptians. To Hermes, such archetypes might appear to be gods. They might appear to be sovereignties. And sovereignties of this kind might well reveal the peculiar dispositions of the creatures suspended within and evolving through these archetypal dominations. Thus, archetypal deities cannot be dissimilar uh, to the peoples whom they support and from whom they receive worship. Plato perhaps gives us the same idea when he causes the world to be, to be divided among the mundane gods, each having a certain allotment. We know that the Athenians regarded Pallas Athena as the patron deity of their city. To Hermes, this would have been an archetypal assignment. In other words, uh, Athena, or Minerva, was the archetype of the Athenians. The Athenians being a kind, not only just Greek, but a kind of Greeks. The Athenians had laws, principles, ideals, traditions. Their culture was filled with this mysterious intangible mana that is worshipped in the South Seas or the arender of our Indians. Uh, these people belonged, and because they belonged, they lived and died in the support of that to which they belonged. And escaping from this sense of belonging were uneasy and dissatisfied. We may have a thousand other explanations for this condition today, but to Hermes, the basic meaning of this belonging was that they were within archetype, and that to what, uh, what we call the folk, or the collective consciousness of groups, is archetypal, and that these archetypes have a consciousness, not merely as existence as patterns or designs upon a tracing board, even though that tracing board be regarded as the universal mind itself. This uh, concept, then, would lead uh, to... Uh, the concept further that, that reason or universal mind this firstborn cognition of the infinite must recognize archetypes of a mundane order as dividing forces as Homer describes the struggle between the gods of Greece and Troy in the battles for the Trojan city so all struggle on earth bore witness to archetypal strife. And as surely as individuals find grave difficulties 
in overcoming their prejudices or their opinions, or escaping from the boundaries of their racial or cultural traditions. So likewise, these things are dividing powers, keeping the individual locked within an archetype, but forbidding him to depart into a larger pattern. Here Hermes conceives the rescuing power of the universal mind. He perceives that this power is not only master over the world, but master over the patterns of the world. That it is within the power of the messianic mind to liberate creatures from archetype. That it can impose upon all things one greater archetype. And that is the archetype of divine reason itself. By this means, men break away from lesser gods. A revolt against restrictions and limitations upon consciousness. And because there exists within them the peculiar power of the true mind of God, they are able, as in the Gnostic philosophy, to escape from the abyss and to free themselves from the power of the seven planets, representing deities of archetype, deities imposing limitation and separation upon living things. Separation through classification, whereas the universal mind breaks through. It does not deny the levels of life, but it unites these levels at their apexes, or at their most common grounds of junction. It brings them all within one master archetype, that archetype being the pure substance of the divine cognition itself. Thus this mind functions as a preserving force. It may also be merit, merit to worship this mind, to adore it, to venerate it. For to Hermes, worship was merely a profound statement of acceptance. Worship implied that the individual agreed with the object of his worship, that he believed likewise, that he saw in the object of his worship an archetypal pattern that was the fulfillment of the deepest graces within himself. Therefore, worship is an allegiance. It is a giving of oneself to a concept, to a de degree of enlightenment, to a conviction deeper and more real than that ordinarily or previously held to be true. Thus man, moving by consciousness toward universals, moved by the reason within himself, sought to break through archetypes. And our entire history of civilization has been a motion from isolation towards unification to at least a partial degree. We have not achieved the end, but the natural tendency for man...